Okay, good afternoon and welcome. Uh, we will uh, go ahead and start since uh, my watch says it's on time, uh, but I might be a tad ahead of some of you uh, by a minute or two. Uh, this afternoon we're going to be talking about uh, depression and some biblical insights. And this is a little different than what I normally give in depression. I'm Dr. Neil Medley. Uh, and we have authored the Depression Recovery Program that many of, some of you may have heard about. Uh, it's being uh, given in a lot of different venues uh, throughout the United States um, with uh, a rather uh, high degree, and this is a objective uh, studies, with a rather high degree of success. And most of the time when I'm speaking about depression, I'm giving the, the studies, the scientific studies behind how our program developed and why we include this in the program, et cetera. And so it's very scientifically based. And part of the science is the spiritual component as well. Uh, but this talk is going to be a little bit different because of the subtitle that was assigned, uh, and that is the Bible uh, and psychology. And so I'm going to be taking a little bit different twist, and we're going to be looking at some biblical insights, and then we'll also talk a little bit about science. The Bible tells of a man who was tall, and by the way, is there an advantage to being tall if you're a man? Did you know since 1900, the tallest person has won the presidential election in all but one election? Uh, so it's, uh, it's emerging as one of the best predictors, uh, actually, of, of who will become a president. Uh, and of course, that's of course if it's, uh, if it's men. So there are um, some advantages of being tall uh, if you're a man. And scientific studies have actually shown some other advantages as well besides just being a possibility for the NBA. Stunningly handsome, the Bible says, if you take a look at the original language there. Not just good-looking, but stunningly good-looking. Uh, is there an advantage to being good-looking? Wealthy. Now, I know of some people that have one of these attributes. I know of few who have two of those attributes. Uh, but it's very rare to find someone who has all three, and even more rare to have the fourth attribute that the Bible tells us, well-liked by the general public. You know, there are some Hollywood people who have those three things, but they might be well-liked as far as a Hollywood following on the set. But the people who actually know them, and of course we deal with a lot of Hollywood individuals uh, in our depression recovery program. Depression is rampant in Hollywood, by the way, uh, by the very ones who are smiling and making people laugh on the set. Uh, it is quite uh, rampant among them. But uh, those uh, people who often have those first three are actually despised and hated by those who work for them and by those who are surrounding them in family environments, etc. But the Bible tells accurately that this man had all four of those attributes. And so why wouldn't he feel just great? In fact, he had another attribute that's even... Uh, just as impressive, the Lord anointed him to be the first king over God's chosen people, Israel. He was not just a king of any nation. He was the king of God's chosen people, Israel. Now, there's a lot of people who think that if they just had one or two of those things, there is no way they would feel bad. Uh, and uh, if they had all four of those things, they would be set for life for a completely happy and fulfilled existence. But you know what? They're just as wrong as uh, those who would look at the Bible and say Saul would obviously have that. He was set up for that. Because our emotions and our feelings have very little to do with our attributes that we are born with genetically, or actually have very little to do with how intelligent we are or even how successful uh, we are from the worldly perspective. There are some ad additional great attributes that Saul had. He demonstrated a gracious spirit toward those who conspired against him during the process of becoming king. 
And this was pretty remarkable. He could have easily gone after that group and had some sort of punishment. The punishment actually could have been death uh, for conspiring in a very unethical way, really, in an un, um, a theocracy way, in the way God had appointed this whole process. And he could have uh, easily put the death penalty out there, but maybe not the death penalty if he's going to be gracious, maybe life in prison or maybe you know, taking away their houses and properties or those type of things. There was no penalty for these individuals. He demonstrated a very gracious spirit. He also scored tremendous victories against the Ammonites and the Philistines, Israel's enemies who threatened the peace and welfare of God's people. And so I ask you again, why wouldn't King Saul feel just great? He had, as it seems, at least at the time, everything. Well, whenever someone suffers from a mental illness, we have to ask why. And there are causes of depression. In fact, depression is becoming, the Surgeon General calls it an epidemic in our society today. There are more depressed people in America today than there ever have been. And the interesting thing about it is we're living in a society where there are more fun things to do than ever before in human history. Uh, more conveniences than ever before in human history. If these fun things and these convenient things were actually treatments or even preventives for depression, what should we be seeing? We should be seeing far less depression. We should be seeing depression on the lowest scales ever recorded in human history, but actually we're seeing it at much larger scales. And so we have to ask, why? And of course, this is one of the reasons why our depression recovery program Developed. I actually did an extensive literature um, uh, search and research on the causes of major depression. And it turns out the brain is pretty resilient. You can have one major cause of depression and still not experience it. You can have two. You can have even three different categories of causes and not experience it. It's not until you get the fourth category that depression uh, comes about. We know of, of three obvious ones. First, going against his conscience by only partially obeying the commandments of God. Now, what is this alluding to? There's a scientific, uh, in fact, this is research in the last 15 years on depression. Studies show that when the frontal lobe goes down in circulation and activity, depression then often results. First, the frontal lobe goes down then depression or another mental illness, anxiety disorder, or something goes about. And one of the ways in which the frontal lobe can be suppressed is by going against your conscience, particularly in a habitual manner, not just once, not just twice, and then realizing you need to turn around. But it's habitual. And then the frontal lobe goes down. Now, actually, guilt, uh, by the way, uh, does not, in and of itself, suppress the frontal lobe. If you have feelings of guilt, particularly if it's appropriate guilt, it's actually a sign that the frontal lobe is intact. In fact, what they used to do with individuals, when people were overridden with guilt, they would actually surgically remove the frontal lobe of the brain, called the frontal lobotomy. And uh, this is what would happen. People would uh, undergo this procedure. Before the procedure, uh, they would ask, uh, what would you do if you borrowed a watch and lost the watch? And the individual would say, well, I would, uh, I would pay for that watch or gather uh, some things together to replace the watch. After that surgery is performed, they were guilt-ridden about some other things, but they would just ask them the question, what would happen if you borrowed a watch and then lost the watch? And the individual would smile and say sincerely from their heart, well, then I would borrow another. Uh, this is, uh, th there wasn't the guilt uh, that was there. And in fact, uh, one of the things, you mentioned guilt, I wasn't going to go into it in, in a whole lot of detail, but guilt, appropriate guilt is a very important change agent. And this is one of the things popular psychology tells us that all guilt is bad. In fact, I was giving a, a, a talk to a large, uh, a large group of people in Ecuador. It's actually the largest 
Seventh-day Adventist church in all of Ecuador in Quito where the, the, the place was packed and a huge balcony and things. And I was giving a talk not on this but on the frontal lobe of the brain. And I was talking about things that suppress the frontal lobe, things that enhance it, etc. And at the end, uh, I was there in the back and the people were filing out and they were quite um, moving, you could tell, and, and were asking a lot of interesting questions in there. There was a Harvard geologist. He was trained at Harvard. He lived in Ecuador. He was a multimillionaire uh, that was there. And he came right up next to me. He could speak English, obviously, since he was trained at Harvard. And he was interested in the response. And he couldn't see any negative response yet. And so he finally had to say what he thought was going to come forward in these people. And he said, Dr. Nedley, I think you've done a tremendous disservice here today. And I said, oh, well, uh, I'm always wanting to learn. Tell me what I could have done differently. He says, I think you have made everyone feel guilty here. Now, uh, of course, he equated that with a disservice. Of course, my purpose was not to make everyone feel guilty. My purpose was to enhance their life significantly. And by utilizing this information, their life could be enhanced. And so I explained that uh, to him and also went into uh, some more explanation. But the first thought that came into my mind was praise God. Because the Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes in, according to the Bible, the first thing that he does is to what? What is a convict? A convict is someone who's declared guilty. So if we try to get rid of guilt, and this is, this is one of these pop psychology things that, that uh, comes out there, that guilt is bad. People will go, go through all sorts of extremes and steps to not feel guilty. This is where all of the self-defense mechanisms come in and all of these uh, attributes so that they don't have to feel guilty because they think guilt is bad for them. Now, if they don't do anything about the guilt, it is bad. It can do some bad things down the road. But guilt, if it's appropriate guilt, gives us the opportunity to change. And that's the first step of change, is to actually get good information that makes us appropriately feel guilt. Now, inappropriate guilt is a bad thing, and, uh, and that's there for another discussion. But in Saul's case, going against his conscience, frontal lobe suppression. Number two, stressful life events with multiple wars and his knowledge that the monarchy would eventually be taken from him and his family and given to someone else. He had a lot of stress in his life. It wasn't near as good a time as when Solomon was king or when David was king. It was a much more stressful time when Saul was king. There was multiple wars, and then this information from the prophet that the kingdom would be taken from him. And Saul not only understood what Samuel was saying, but continued to dwell on this. And particularly he was dwelling on what he thought was unfair. Did he think it was fair that the monarchy was going to be taken from him? He said, this is just a little thing. It wasn't that big. In fact, I obeyed 98%. And you're taking the 2% that I didn't do and taking the kingdom from me? And he kept dwelling upon his perceived unfairness of the situation. And by the way, when, we get, when you get into to the look of the thought processes, Saul, we're going to talk about this tomorrow when we talk about emotional intelligence, uh, Saul was not thinking accurately. And whenever you think inaccurately about something, particularly from a selfish perspective, that will also suppress the frontal lobe. Accurate thoughts actually improve frontal lobe circulation. But he was dwelling on the distortion aspect of things. Uh, in response to this stress. Now, he could have handled that stress a, a little differently that could have actually enhanced his frontal lobe. Not all stress is bad. In fact, it's how we handle stress that's going to determine whether our frontal lobe is enhanced or suppressed. The third aspect, and this is something that's also not self-intuitive, I high self-esteem. Now, uh, Dr. Parks talked about uh, the misdirected aspect of self-esteem and when, where it's led. And she just quoted, I think, uh, I, saw, I heard one or two quotes. There's a whole plethora of good medical science out there showing us that self-esteem, high self-esteem, 
particularly esteeming yourself others better than yourself, is not good for mental health. And you would think for depression, this would be the opposite. A lot of people think depression is low self-esteem. Why do they think that? Because one of the hallmark symptoms of more severe depression is feelings of worthlessness. Feelings of worthlessness. And there's a difference between self-worth and self-esteem. Uh, and, uh, and so, but what happens first, how they get to those feelings of worthlessness is first high self-esteem and then that self-esteem is wounded. We call wounded pride. And when the pride is wounded, then it tends to go to another extreme, which is also bad, and that is the feelings of worthlessness. Now, after I had run, this was actually uh, one of my first outpatient depression recovery programs that I had run in Ardmore, Oklahoma, and we had seen significant response, in fact, beyond what I anticipated. When we first started incorporating these principles with depression recovery, I thought we might get close to where medicines were with all of these principles, and I had no idea we were going to get far better than any medicine on the planet or any combination of, of medicine. So it was a tremendous response, and I still wasn't sure. I thought, well, you know, maybe this will be in this group, and I'm not sure it's going to be repeated group after group. I, we hadn't done a whole lot of groups at that point in time. But we did a little follow-up program. And the follow-up program was to try to enhance their frontal lobe function. It was actually the study of Daniel, the first six chapters of Daniel. And by studying the Word of God, reading it, analyzing it, it enhances frontal lobe circulation. So we were on our fourth follow-up program. We were doing one once a month. And we came to uh, session number four, Nebuchadnezzar's writing of his conversion story. And Nebuchadnezzar was very impressed with Daniel in chapter 1 and, and with, his, uh, with Daniel in chapter 2, with his three friends in Jan Daniel chapter 3, but he was not converted. And what had to happen before Nebuchadnezzar could become converted? Anyone? His pride had to be laid in the dust. And by the way, how did the Lord do that? He put him through a depression recovery program. <laughs> and his pride was so severe that it wasn't just a 10-day program, or it wasn't even an eight-week program. It was a seven-year program. He had to get him out there eating green vegetables uh, there straight out of the ground. Uh, he had to get him on the circadian rhythm. The light-dark uh, cycles uh, had to be there. Uh, there's, uh, uh, there's actually some good evidence when we look at counsel that he was being fed omega-3. And by the way, who was feeding Daniel? Or uh, Actually, I gave it away. Nebuchadnezzar Daniel was the one still caring for this king. Have some flaxseed, king. Uh, and, uh, and so he was, uh, he was going through this depression recovery program and then the cognitive behavioral therapy, the accurate thoughts, uh, had to come in. Nebuchadnezzar's pride was laid in the dust, and now you could tell he was converted. How could you tell? Because there was no coercion at the end of his story. Before, he would always coerce people that he thought they ought to do certain things. And there was no coercion, just a story. And by the way, that's another foundational principle of depression recovery. Freedom is part of that. People that get into depression often feel trapped uh, etc. But again, Saul's depression caused by pride. Now, he probably had a fourth. We don't know if that fourth was a circadian rhythm hit. We don't know if it was a genetic hit. Uh, there's obviously some other things that could have been going on there. It could have been a medical hit, etc. But you normally have to have four to get severe depression. And Saul had easily three causes, three different categories of causes of depression. By the way, pride. Do you have it? There's a book uh, written by a uh, cognitive behavioral therapist called What Your Counselor Never Told You. And it actually goes into the uh, seven sins that lead to mental illness. And the first sin that's mentioned that leads to mental illness is pride. And in that book, it tells you, uh, in fact, we have that book available at our booth if you want to uh, take a look at it in more detail. There's different tests for all seven of these. It's a pretty interesting book. But in this book, he goes into how to know whether you have symptoms of pride. 
trying to be noticed, craving attention. Have you ever wondered why the, the tattoo industry has taken off? Why the piercings in all of these places? Uh, why all of this? Underneath it, craving attention. Pride underneath it. Itching for compliments. Needing to be important. Detesting the idea of being submissive. Loathing the idea of admitting to wrongdoing. Strongly opinionated. Being argumentative. Demanding your way. Wanting control over others. Flaunting your individual rights. Refusing advice. Being critical, yet resenting criticism. Being oversensitive. And finally, thinking you have excellences you don't have. He mentions if you have one or more of these, you have the cognitive distortion of magnification. We'll go into that in more detail. And you are going to be set up for significant emotional problems down the road. And so pride needs to be taken care of uh, in the correct manner. Well, when Saul underwent the recommended therapy for depression, would he feel better? Did he? Do you remember the story? When he underwent the recommended therapy, he would feel better. But as this gentleman pointed out, for a while. However, in time, with the three causes still active, and the third cause, wounded pride, becoming even more prominent, he would slip back into fear and depression. So although therapies were helping him, at least temporarily, the causes were still there, and thus the depression would come back in force. And of course it became worse because now it was being done even under therapy uh, at times, and that uh, also uh, uh, leads to concerns down the road. Although a great man with wonderful potential, he continued to live a selfish life, never completely obeying God, and never giving up his pride for more than a few days. He actually would for a few days. At times the truth would come to him, he would understand it, and he would submit to it. But it was short-lived. He would not continue in that realm. When times would get tough, Saul would desire the blessings of God, notwithstanding his less-than-complete commitment to God's commandments. He finally went totally against his conscience by consulting with the devil's servant, a witch, when the Lord did not answer him the way Saul thought he should. And by the way, that's another danger point. When we're demanding things, our way and the Lord to answer in our way, it's dangerous. I notice one of the seminars here is living happily ever after. And a more extreme example of this, true story, because it happened to one of my employees uh, who was uh, working for us uh, years ago. But uh, there was a, uh, a uh, religious man that was dating her. Actually, they were both members of our church. And uh, she wasn't too sure about you know, continuing on in this relationship. And he was, um, had very strong desires for the relationship to continue. And so seeing her reticence, etc., he prayed this prayer as he was going on a hill, going down a hill, and a railroad track was in front of him, and he could see a train coming. And he prayed this prayer, Lord, if you want us to get married, allow me to get there before the train does. He got there before the train did, and he explained the divine intervention to his girlfriend, and uh, they thus ended up getting married as a result of that. Now, uh, that, you know, that, that's a more extreme example. By the way, the marriage has not gone well, if you're wondering. It's, there's clear signs that it wasn't the Lord's plan for, the, for those two to be together. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it is um, uh, often we put these little fleeces and demands that are in our own way. And Saul was doing that as well. And when the Lord didn't answer him the way he thought he should, then he goes way off on the other end in order to get a answer. And uh, so beware of that. There are times in which we're all tempted to do foolish things like this. Well, under tremendous stress with his enemies closing in, how, does, how did Saul's sad life end? By suicide. Wonderful potential. 
in that man. Tremendous potential. Life ending by suicide. Here's, here's someone else who suffered from severe major depression. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy what? Pleasure. Pleasure. Well, that's the opposite of depression, right? Saul is saying, and this isn't Saul now. This is another prominent individual with a very high IQ saying, I see these people doing it and they have smiles on their faces. And they thoroughly appear to be enjoying it. And so let me try it. See what it's like. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from what? Any joy. Anything that would produce pleasure. Solomon was there to experiment and try it out. We know he tried alcohol. There's evidence he tried opium. It was around uh, at that time. Uh, he, we know he tried uh, the, uh, the, the, the pornography uh, side of things, except his was... Uh, the live variety and not necessarily um, the, the, the magazines, etc. Where did it lead him to? Therefore, I what? Hated life for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That's where it led. In fact, in the same chapter, he says, Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to what? Despair. Now, there's something that is that's important for us to understand here. These things that Solomon was partaking of actually transiently improved dopamine levels in the brain. Uh, If we take a look at substances, I mean, chocolate can have that effect. Did you know there are people that are addicted to chocolate? What gender do you think has more of an addictive relationship to chocolate? Yeah, anyone want to guess what percent of the female population in America is addicted to chocolate? <laughs> it's 40% if you take a look at the, the um, definition of addiction. 10% in men, so it's not just a female uh, issue. But when chocolate is consumed, the dopamine levels go up. And the first time you consume chocolate, they actually go up higher than where the mood levels are supposed to be. You know, your mood levels are supposed to be between happy and sad, but they go up above the happiness scale. And even after the sugar's out of the system, the dopamine levels can be up there for a little while, and this is why people get the addiction. It makes them feel less depressed. It not only tastes good, it makes them feel less depressed. But what happens is those dopamine levels start to fall, and pretty soon they fall a little bit below neutral. The next time the chocolate is consumed, it comes up, Not quite as high, close, not quite as high, but then the dip goes down further. And pretty soon, the individual who's caught in this cycle of addiction no longer does it to get high because now their curves are way down here. In between, they're below where people should be feeling, below the the typical sad level, and they do it just to get the dopamine levels up to neutral. And in between times, there's feelings of significant sadness, and there aren't sad things going on in their life. They're wondering why in the world they are feeling this way. Now, that's different. Uh, The devil's choices are that way. It's different than God's choices. When you watch, in fact, if you're in a cycle of addiction like that, it tends to lead to more addictions, etc., and this is what is the, the issue. Many people get addicted to the, the rock music things, the video games, the entertainment, Hollywood TV. And when these people are in their cycle of addictions, they can watch a beautiful sunset and it will do nothing for them. No dopamine surge whatsoever. When I go out and watch a beautiful sunset, the dopamine levels go up nice and high, not to the huge euphoric levels like when you're under an addiction, but they go up right there at the very high level. You're talking about it. If there's people around you, you're enjoying it. You're thinking about what God has done, and they don't dip down. They stay up there for a while, and they continue to go. So both groups get their dopamine levels high. The question is, how are we getting them, and are they these dopamine spikes and surges that Solomon was into and where it led him to the point where his heart was in despair. The book Conflict and Courage has many envied the popularity and abundant glory of Solomon, thinking that of all men he must be the most what? Happy. And you know, you'll see this in the Hollywood scene. 
you'll have individuals, and we have treated them, that the rest of the public envy with a tremendous envy and think that of all people, they have to be the happiest. They have wealth and abundance. They have a, a private jet anytime they want it to take them wherever. They have attendance uh, wherever. They live in beautiful mansions. And uh, they have everything, it seems, this world has to offer, as did Solomon. But amid all that glory of artificial display, the man envied is the one to be what? Most pitied. If they could just see these individuals when they don't have the cameras flashing, they would realize these people are indeed pitiful Solomon, his countenance is dark with despair. All the splendor about him is but to him a mockery of the distress and anguish of his thoughts as he reviews his misspent life in seeking for happiness through the indulgence and selfish gratification of every desire. By his own bitter experience, Solomon learned the emptiness of a life that seeks in what? Its highest good? Seeks in earthly things its highest good. Gloomy and soul-harassing thoughts troubled him night and day. For him there was no longer any joy of life or peace of mind. And the future was dark with despair. Solomon went into severe major depression. But fortunately, that helped him to turn around. His significant depression, this is what we've seen in many individuals. They'll have its significant major depression and then they'll come to a true depression recovery program and it will be the impetus to totally change their life around and give them the new perspective and the accurate thoughts. Solomon had severe depression and the other thing that helped him was the words of a prophet. The words of a prophet came and told him that the kingdom was going to be rent from him and given to someone else and it woke him up. And then he started reviewing his misspent life and these uh, things and he decided that he was going to instead follow God's principles in his life. And that's when he ended up writing the book Ecclesiastes. All of these ways, whether it be chocolate, whether it be entertainment, internet, uh, whether it be these video games, uh, whether it be the, uh, the type of music that leads to a, a addictive uh, types of things, uh, particularly the syncopated rock and roll rhythms, uh, or whether it be cocaine, etc. All of these are false ways of altering the way we feel. And one thing we need to keep in mind, you can never get enough of what you don't need. Do you need any of these addictive things in order to survive? You know, some people, it, it, one of the addictions is dramatically increasing in our society today is the sexual addictions. And some people actually mistakenly believe that it is their most important need. And I have to tell them as a physician that deals with critical care patients and has signed many death certificates, I've never had to put as a cause of death lack of sex. It's not a cause of death. It's not even in the top 100 causes of death. It's not a cause of death. It's not their most important need. It's not even in their top 10 needs, etc. But yet they have this in there that quotes it's their need. It's not something that they quotes need. You can never get enough of what you don't need because what you don't need will never satisfy you. And many of these individuals think if they just do it enough, finally they'll be satisfied. Or they won't want to do it anymore. And they don't realize where this cycle of addiction leads them. This was a recent report just given last year, and I was glad CNN gave it some pub publicity. The next time you are deciding between ice cream and cake, buying a car or taking a trip to Europe, accepting a new job or keeping your old one, you should remember two things. First, your decision is rooted in the desire to what? Become happy, or at least happier than you are now. Second, there's a good chance the decision you make will be what? Wrong. Harvard psychologist Daniel Gilbert summed it up our failings this way. People have a lot of bad theories about happiness. What we think is going to produce happiness and the decisions that we're making are often the wrong decisions. And this is why I often, or I've been uh, mentioning, uh, just after you've been around a while and seeing these things develop, one of the ways in which you can, it's almost prophetic in a way, the, the Ten Commandments are not just God's will for our life, they are prophetic in regards to our future happiness. Those who don't follow them 
tend to run into significant problems with their happiness that they don't have any control over uh, at points. And those who do follow them end up living some very happy, fulfilled, and satisfied existences. Our culture implores us to buy bigger, newer, better things, but research shows stuff does not buy happiness. By and large, money buys happiness only for those who lack the basic needs. Once you pass an income of $50,000, more money doesn't buy more happiness, Gilbert says. With that in mind, Siegel said we should pass on buying lottery tickets. Find small things we can do every day that bring us joy, whether it's going for a walk, cooking a meal, or reading a book. Well, as I mentioned, depression is increasing. In the last successive generations, it's continued to go up. We used to call this the midlife crisis. It's not called that anymore because it frequently occurs by age 25. In fact, it's one, there's one in four chance a female graduating from high school in America today will have already suffered major depression. One in four chance. And this isn't situational depression. It's not from breaking up from a boyfriend or it's not because their parents got divorced or they had to move schools. That's situational depression. This is major depression where there is no obvious emotional traumatic event that brings it about. And this is why we have to take a look at the causes. This is just briefly the 10 hit categories of causes that we researched out. Genetic is one that the world, uh, uh, we'll have 10 hits here, 10 blows to the brain. The world is largely caught up on hit number one and hit number eight, as I'll talk about. They're also somewhat caught up on hit number two. But hit number one, I'll have people come into my office with depression and they will tell me, I've been to psycho psychologists, I've been to psychiatrists, and I've been to many doctors, and the problem is I was born with a chemical imbalance. And thus, I will have to take this medication for the rest of my life. What they're saying is, I have the genetics. That is the chemical imbalance that's bringing it about. Did you know research shows that even though you may have every genetic flaw, that can bring about major depression, you will never experience it unless you have other causes that are operative. Genetics by itself does not cause depression. Now, it's important to recognize that can be one of the hit categories. And by the way, I was speaking to a large group of psychologists and psychiatrists in Germany. Um, it was a whole group. I was the only non-psychiatrist. I'm an internal medicine physician uh, who has done a lot of uh, research and treatment in mental health patients. But... Uh, I was the only non-psychiatrist uh, there presenting, and the person that was presenting before me in this plenary session was going into the genetics of depression and, of course, trying to find the, you know, another gene or maybe how we can counteract this bad gene, et cetera. And there was kind of a hoopla in the room. The idea is if we can just find the precise genetic flaw, then we can make a pharmaceutical agent that might counteract this and then might help the individual through their depression. Well, when I got up to speak, my presentation was lifestyle and depression. So I just had to mention, since there was a little bit of a hoopla in the room, I didn't want to throw a lot of, a lot of cold water on it, but I wanted to think. I said, is depression increasing or decreasing in Europe? Dramatically increasing, they said. I said, I figured as much. It's doing that in the United States as well. I said, uh, if depression is dramatically increasing, and the reason is due to genetics, that means that people with major depression are remarkably more reproductive than those who do not have major depression. And they looked at me and they laughed and they shook their heads. You know what the research shows? People with major depression are less reproductive. It affects their reproductive ability, actually, when it gets pretty severe. And the other thing is, when they have depression, they're not as likely to, even if they do have a good partner, to actually do reproductive events. And so uh, it does dramatically reduce uh, reproductivity. Uh, and so if anything, if we're just taking a look at the theory of evolution and genetics, what should we be seeing based on that fact? Less depression. In fact, in a few generations, it should be wiped off the planet if it's just due to genetics. But obviously it's not. The reason why it's increasing is not because the gene is increasing. It's because the other things on the hit list are increasing. Developmental hits. This has to do with how we are raised and what type of environment uh, we are raised uh, in and even how quickly we mature. The, the quicker the maturity level, uh, particularly in girls, uh, the, more, the greater risk for anxiety disorders, panic disorders, depression, 
uh, et cetera. That's one of the concerns with the um, with menstrual periods starting in girls at age eight, et cetera, uh, which is occurring in commonplace today, which it didn't used to do in yesteryear. Third, lifestyle. This has to do with whether you're on a regular exercise program. Physical exercise helps the brain, and it actually improves serotonin levels, norepinephrine levels, uh, et cetera. Circadian rhythm. This has to do with our sleep-wake cycles, and we actually do better when we're getting uh, bright light early in the morning and going to bed uh, earlier, uh, a study show. And that circadian rhythm is important for the brain. The addiction hit, we talked about that one already. Uh, nutrition, this is a very overlooked area. What we eat does get turned into neurotransmitters. It is vitally important uh, in regards to our mental health and whether we're making enough dopamine or norepinephrine uh, or, or serotonin or another of the uh, neurotransmitters. Uh, the seventh uh, hit or toxic uh, hits. There are toxins that are more prevalent in certain areas of our society. This is one of the uh, things about fish. Uh, fish is uh, particularly clean fish. By the way, unclean fish are not high in omega-3. They're poor sources of omega-3. But clean fish tend to be higher in omega-3, some much higher than others. And fish are high in omega-3, but unfortunately they're also, uh, 100 years ago they were great food, but now they're the highest source of mercury in the food supply, and mercury can actually cause a problem uh, with the uh, brain and can also lead to depression. This is the, the hit that most uh, psychologists are familiar with, the social hit. However, this is an overblown hit. Depression leads to social problems, but it's not often a social cause that brings it about. Sometimes it is, and this is why we administer tests to try to find out, is it a social cause or is it a social complication? In fact, severe depression, just about everyone tends to seek isolation, and that's a, a distorted thought as well. They think it's the events in their life that have led to depression, and so they try to minimize those events. And so the way to do that is to get isolated, and they don't realize that's not the reason why they ran into depression. This is why we need to find the actual cause. And so many times they go to a psychologist... And this is assumed to be a problem, and so sometimes they're turned against the very loved ones who can help them out of the situation uh, because of the social manipulation that's being attempted to improve their depression when it's not even a social cause. The ninth, medical conditions, these would be like thyroid conditions, uh, lupus, low vitamin D levels, low B12 levels, etc. Uh, these can also, in com uh, combination with others, lead to depression. And the tenth one is the frontal lobe hit uh, that I talked about. In fact, no matter what the underlying cause is in depression, we tend to see a dramatic suppression in the frontal lobe. This is a PET scan. This is like your Doppler weather radar. And up here are the eyes, and this is the back of the head. These are the sides of the head. And as you see in a depressed individual, they're down in activity through the entire brain. But the biggest difference is there in the frontal lobe of the brain. This is, by the way, the same brain after it recovered from depression. Notice uh, the dramatic improvement in the entire brain circulation, but particularly there in the frontal lobe of the brain. And this is something that I think we need to talk about more. The secular psychology world ignores the frontal lobe of the brain, almost virtually. In fact, if you were to read our two chapters and depression the way out on the frontal lobe, you would know more about the frontal lobe than your average PhD psychologist or your average psychiatrist. And I'm, I'm serious, because this is an area of the brain in all of their studies that they tend to overlook. And the reason why they overlook it is because even secular neurology textbooks tell us it's the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will. And they don't know what to do with this spirituality thing. Uh, because of the close association between psychology and agnosticism, etc. And so they tend to leave it alone. It's kind of an area that's, uh, that's not really dealt with or talked about. And the way to dramatically improve it uh, is through spiritual things. In fact, this is a nice study. Uh, this was actually published in a secular journal. Strong religious faith helps speed recovery from depression. Patients depressed with higher intrinsic religiosity scores had more rapid remission than patients with lower scores. Intrinsic religiosity means that you actually believe 
in God, you actually have a faith. Extrinsic religiosity just talks about church attendance, maybe doing a religious activity like the rosary or something like that. Patients recovered from depression 70% sooner with every 10-point increase in the religiosity assessment score. External religious activity had much less of an impact, and that's actually the American Journal of Psychiatry. We talk about in our program three foundational spiritual principles. And, and in fact, I should mention, you know, our program, although it's being uh, done in many churches, our outpatient program uh, throughout uh, America, it's actually um, starting um, to uh, take off even in the non-Adventist uh, realm. The, the, uh, the Baptist church is ordering up the Nedley Depression Recovery Program in record numbers. The Mormons uh, are doing it as well. Uh, but uh, we have developed a... Uh, the, the spiritual principles uh, that we put into the program, and they have to adhere to these three spiritual principles. Otherwise, they're no longer able to put on a depression recovery program. In other words, they have their cert certification removed. And the first spiritual principle is truth. We talk about accuracy in thought, non-distorted thought, and a pursuit of truth. And you know, the interesting thing about truth, uh, it really should be the basis of which we make all of our decisions. Even in the court of law, like America, when a, an important decision is to be made, what is, what is it to be based on? That's right. The, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That is what our entire judgment is to be based on. It's not to be based on who we want to succeed in that courtroom. It's not to be based on whether we like this individual or what's going to happen to that individual afterwards or can this individual pay for it. They have lots of money. They can, quote, pay for it and help this poor guy out uh, or et cetera. It's not to be based on any of those things. It's to be based on truth. And when we make our decisions based on truth and when we Discipline our thoughts, which we'll talk about tomorrow, and emotional intelligence. By the way, all of you will have the opportunity to take an EQ test tomorrow. And your score on that EQ test will actually determine how successful you will be in life, much more than your IQ uh, test scores. Uh, and so you'll be able, and then we'll talk about how we can improve it. Unlike IQ, IQ can be improved a little bit, but EQ can be dramatically improved. So no matter what your score is at the beginning, don't get too discouraged. Uh, because uh, it is something that can be improved upon. But one of the ways we improve it is talking about accuracy uh, in truth. And you remember Christ, when he came and we had the crown of thorns upon him, and Pilate asked him, why are you here? And he said, for this reason was I born. For this cause came I into the world. And what did he say? To bear witness to the truth. And he said, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. The foundational reason why he came was truth. And the Bible says that, Christ, that God cannot tell what? A lie. It's not, he's a free moral agent. He could if he wanted to. But he puts truth above himself. And he would rather be wiped out, his existence be wiped out, than for him to sacrifice truth in any way, shape, or form. And so truth is a foundational principle. It's very important to God, and thus it also should become very uh, important uh, to us. The second foundational principle is that of agape love, self-sacrificing love. In fact, uh, there are a whole group of studies coming out on altruism. This is what the secular world calls agape love, altruism. Sometimes they'll do studies on volunteerism. If you want to take a look at some of the scientific studies, those are the, the two terms you would search out, volunteerism and altruism. One recent study showed that those who do five acts of altruism per week are significantly more successful and live much happier lives. Now, that doesn't seem on the surface to be true. Altruism is self-sacrificing love. You're doing something for someone else with no thought of ever getting any benefit from it whatsoever. Uh, that's what altruism is. There's, there's nothing in it for you uh, in doing that. Uh, and those individuals actually live happier lives and are actually, it's a resistant to depression and uh, mental uh, health 
problems. And by the way, he puts Christ, God also puts that principle above himself. He was more willing, again, to be wiped out eternally than for him to sacrifice any principles of agape love. Well, agape love is self-sacrificing love. Altruism, if we take a look at it, there's little differences there. Altruism is talking about acts. Acts of kindness with no thought of anything in return. Uh, agape love would be a deeper principle because it's the thought behind that. Uh, the third uh, aspect is freedom. The Lord could have prevented sin from ever coming into the world, could have prevented the devil from forming, etc., by just taking away the freedom or putting instinct there uh, like he does in the ant or like he does in, in other creatures that, uh, that don't have frontal lobes uh, like we have. But yet freedom is a foundational principle. Uh, and this is something that also, when freedoms are tampered with, etc., cetera, uh, it tends to lead uh, to problems. And, of course, often freedom is counteracted by force. And this is where we, um, uh, that also can, of course, lead to even greater mental health problems. Abraham Lincoln aptly stated, force is all-conquering, but its victories are short-lived. And that's because it goes against that foundational principle of freedom. As the moon and the stars of our solar system shine by the reflected light of the sun, so as far as their teaching is true... Do the world's great thinkers reflect the rays of the sun of righteousness? Every gleam of thought, every flash of intellect is from where? The light of the world. One of the reasons why I put this up there, I quote a lot of secular authors. If some of you have read our book, Proof Positive, we have over 2,000 scientific references. We have 1,000 scientific references in our Depression the Way Out book. And sometimes I've been criticized by people because I'm quoting these secular authors. But, you know, often when they're doing studies, particularly the gold standard prospective studies, they are actually, through those studies, revealing truth. And where does that truth come from? They're actually revealing more of the light of the world. They don't realize it. But let's not be afraid of truth and accuracy, no matter where it comes from. Because where it really comes from, no matter if it's from a secular author or not, is from Christ. Whatever line of investigation we pursue with a sincere purpose to arrive at truth, we are brought in touch with the unseen mighty intelligence that is working in and through all. The mind of man is brought into communion with the mind of God, the finite with the infinite. The effect of such communion on body, mind, and soul is beyond estimate. Quite a statement from that classic book, Education, page 13 and 14. Then this statement, again, thinking about the scientific aspect of the frontal lobe. The influence of the Spirit of God is the very best medicine for disease. What's the very best medicine for disease? Influence of the Spirit of God. Heaven is all health. The more deeply heavenly influences are realized, the more sure will be the recovery of the believing invalid. Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. Nine-tenths of the diseases from which men suffer have their foundation here. Nine-tenths of the diseases from which men suffer start out in the mind. It may be that addictive habit uh, that develops that then produces a physical disease. Uh, It may be uh, the way they're thinking about things that then produce a dramatic suppression in their serotonin uh, levels, which then can lead to uh, not only problems in their home, but breast cancer, etc. Perhaps some living home trouble is like a canker eating to the very soul and weakening the life forces. Remorse for sin sometimes undermines the constitution and unbalances the mind. There are erroneous doctrines also, as that of an eternally burning hell and the endless torment of the wicked, that by giving exaggerated and distorted views of the character of God have produced the same result upon sensitive minds. So when we have distortive views or teachings in theology, what can happen? Mental illness can result. I don't know if you remember uh, Susan Smith there in Carolina where she drowned her children there in the lake, lied about it at first, said it was some um, African-American who'd come and and, uh, uh, kidnapped her children, etc. But then they found them there in the lake bed and the evidence clearly pointed to her doing it and then she finally confessed to it. Did you hear why? 
in her sincere testimony when it came there why she did it. She was having marital problems, and she knew if her and her husband split up, it would pay a tremendous toll on their kids. And she also knew that if her kids were drowned in this way, they would be in a better place. They'd be in heaven. And so they're getting ready for significant turmoil in their family relationship, so why not put them in a better place? This is what uh, erroneous views can do that. And I can tell you many individuals, one not long ago, it was about a 14-year-old girl. Her mother died from a car accident about a year before. She was a prominent teacher in our area, public school teacher. And her father was a principal uh, there in one of the local schools. And she did a significant suicide attempt at age 14. And I had to take care of her from the medical perspective in the intensive care unit. And so I had to ask her, why, fortunately, we saved her life. Why did you do this? I wanted to see my mom, and I wanted to be where mom was. The school principal was there, and I told her very clearly. I said, do you know what the Bible teaches about where you would have been? Well, wouldn't I have seen mom? I said, no, you would have been in the grave and you would have been in the same place your mom is in the grave and you would have known nothing. You would have been in a tremendous deep sleep awaiting the resurrection. You would not have seen your mother. Really? She said. I said, yes, that, that's true. And that's what the Bible teaches. And she says, wow, she says, uh, if I would have known that, I would have never even attempted this. Thank you for telling me that. Well, her father comes out of the room after I had said this and says, Dr. Nedley, I want to thank you so much for telling my daughter that. I want you to know I don't believe that way, but I'm not going to tell my daughter anymore. Uh, and uh, I, think, uh, I think what you said was important for her to hear. So, uh, you know, again, these these teachings, these erroneous teachings can lead to some significant behavioral and emotional consequence. Distorted views of the character of God produce the same result upon sensitive mind. Infidels have made the most of these unfortunate cases, attributing insanity to religion. But this is a gross libel and one which they will not be pleased to meet by and by. The religion of Christ, so far from being the cause of insanity, is one of its most what? Most effectual remedies. For it is a, what type of soother of the nerves? A potent soother of the nerves. And sometimes we don't recognize how potent it is. Paul and Silas were taken against their will, beaten 39 times with a cat of nine tails, totally unfair, totally unjustified, but then their feet were put up on stocks. They were laid in a regular dirt floor. But yet, what was happening to their nerves? Were they crying uncontrollably in prison and saying, why me? They had a happy look on their face and they were singing praises to God. Why is that? Their thoughts had much more to do with how they were feeling than what was actually happening in their life. And those thoughts were true thoughts. That is the true way of altering the way you feel. Thinking true thoughts. They weren't thinking fantasy thoughts that they were on a beach or that they were with some beautiful woman. That's what pop psychology will tell you to do. And that is actually a very transient way of making you feel just slightly better, but it sets you up for worse things down the road. They were thinking true and accurate thoughts, and those accurate thoughts had a powerful influence upon them, a potent soother of the nerves. There isn't a narcotic that we could give. There isn't a benzodiazepine, a dose of Xanax that we could give that it could have produced that effect in Paul and Silas with the significant pain that they were undergoing. One of the causes of decreased Frontal lobe activity is ongoing occurrence of going against one conscience or what one knows to be right. Other causes include a low-carb diet, regular viewing of entertainment television. The studies are pretty convincing. Not pretty convincing, very convincing to anyone, objective observer, of the role of entertainment television and how it suppresses the frontal lobe. MTV suppresses it even that much more. Frequent sexual arousal outside of marriage relationships and lack of regular exercise of the frontal lobe, such as analytical thinking and the study of Proverbs. This is why we incorporate the study of scriptures as part of our frontal lobe enhancement program for people uh, with depression. And you know, yesteryear there used to be games that people would play in the evening to enhance their frontal lobe. Those games are almost gone. If there's any mental games played anymore, it's not frontal lobe games, it's temporal lobe games. The temporal lobe is the memory games. This is where trivial pursuit uh, those type of things, even concentration is a mental 
uh, a temporal lobe game, not a frontal lobe game. Uh, and I would encourage you, if you want to have uh, some uh, uh, enjoyable times with your friends, play games where the frontal lobe is actually involved, where there's analytical uh, thinking involved. And sometimes you can get that analytical thinking early on. Some of you may wonder what some of those games are. Scrabble actually is a frontal lobe game, hardly played anymore. Uh, there's one that uh, you can't even buy anymore, but you'll get it on eBay. Actually, we got it uh, on eBay just in the last few months. Brand new set, never been opened up, of a, uh, a game called... Um, Boy, I'm, I'm blanking now. I'll, I'll think of it here in a minute. I need help with my temporal lobe now. Uh, that is um, Mind Compatibility is the name of it. Mind Compatibility, M-I-N-D, Mind Compatibility. Uh, and it is, uh, it's a game that will do uh, frontal lobe enhancement. It's actually an enjoyable uh, a game to uh, play as well. Well, before we close, just a couple of examples. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might blank. Does anyone know? Uh... Uh, what's the blank, though? That's right, that he might die and said, It is enough, O Lord, take away my life. Uh, that was Elijah. He fled because he wanted to save his life, and then he ended up becoming majorly depressed. By the way, the Lord put him through a depression recovery program, too. Angels came and fed him, put him on an exercise program. Uh, <laughs> he wanted to be in the cave where there was no light and dark cycles. The Lord kept doing things to get him out of that cave, uh, get him into the fresh air, out there into the sunshine. And with all of those things, after that was done... It wasn't those spectacular events that helped him out. It was cognitive behavioral therapy. Elijah had some distorted thoughts that had to be straightened out. And, uh, and we can uh, go into that uh, more tomorrow. Uh, a couple, let's see, we're uh, running a little bit out of time. Uh, let's take this last example. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my blank from me. For it is better me to die than to live. Who is that? Jonah, uh, another example. When Elijah was depressed and wanted to die, what did the Lord ask him? Four words. That's right. What doest thou here? And by the way, that's a very good question to ask someone with depression. What are the reasons? What doest uh, thou here? Particularly, is there anything in your life where you've been going against uh, your conscience and what you know to be right, as well as some of the other investigations uh, that we talked about. Uh, Self-examination to see if you've departed from God's plan for your life and taking the necessary corrective action can restore optimal mental health. When Jonah was depressed, what did the Lord say was his cause? Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be? That's right, angry. And of course, angry can lead to, anger can lead to anxiety, etc. And often our anger is emotional reasoning. It's not legitimate. It's not based on true things. And although Jonah thought his anger was legitimate, the Lord demonstrated it was not rational or loving. Jonah had more sympathy for a plant than for 120,000 human beings. This reveals another frontal lobe problem, selfishness, a lack of empathy, and a lack of love uh, for people uh, as well. The treatment that was utilized for King Saul, I told you how it worked temporarily. What was that treatment? Uh, the right kind of music does help. Traditional classical music is the only music that's been shown in prospective randomized controlled studies to help prevent uh, and treat depression both subjectively and objectively. They've tried this with all other types of music. And by the way, hymns come from this, so hymns would qualify uh, as, uh, as this uh, as well. And so music can be part of it. And Closing, there's bad news and good news. The bad news is there isn't much we can do about our genes or development. The good news is the other eight hits we can modify in most cases. The depression can be cured in five months or less, even if our genes and upbringing was flawed. And I should say, if you come to an intense program like our 10-day program, it's often taken care of in just 10 days. Uh, this is an interesting statement. I'll, for the lack of time, I won't go through it. But the enterprise of gaining everlasting life is above every earthly consideration. 
This is even more important than recovery from depression. In order to lead souls to Jesus, there must be a knowledge of what? Human nature and a study of what? The human mind. If we really want to lead souls, we have to study that. Much careful thought and fervent prayer required to know how to approach men and women upon the great subject of truth. Hebrews 12 says, No chastening for the present is joyous but grievous. This is what people go through with mental health problems. They're grieving. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. But let it rather be what? Let it rather be healed. And so, this grieving, as I mentioned, with Solomon's case, depression led him to turn around. And by the way, if Solomon can turn around, every individual with major depression can turn around. His was of a very severe variety. And this is what we've seen. Natural means used in accordance with God's will bring about what? Supernatural results. In fact, there's a problem with supernatural results when they occur on a consistent basis. This is the problem that we've been experiencing with our depression recovery program. We're measuring it in very objective ways. The before and after results and the longer-term results. And what is happening is the people that look at that data say that it's so far out of line from what they've seen in other trials that it is unbelievable. Uh, and so uh, it produces some, some doubt uh, there. Uh, this group of psychologists and psychiatrists in Germany that I was talking to, they had that doubt because they were seeing the results and they said, wait, this is way off the chart because you're not dealing with just major depression, you're dealing with resistant depression. Many of our people have been on all sorts of drugs, medication. They're not coming to us as a first line. You see, they're coming to us as a last resort. And so this is the most difficult type to treat. And when you see that type of improvement, you're just wondering about it. So I actually had to get out my pictures. I thought, well, for my next presentation, I'll, I'll show them the actual hydrotherapy treatments that we're doing, the contrast bath, show them the food that's going through, show them the light therapy, show them uh, how we are dealing with the, the, the subject of truth. And afterwards, they were convinced. In fact, some of those same German psychiatrists came to our last depression recovery program uh, to see what was going on so that they can do it uh, in Germany and Switzerland as well. Good news. What a difference. And, of course, this is the difference that we're really wanting to lead them to, is to not only improved health of body, mind, and soul, but improved health of body, mind, and soul for eternity. Let's bow our heads, and then we'll uh, open it up for some questions afterwards. Father in heaven, we thank you for the interest that you have in our body, mind, and soul. And we thank you that your truths and your word and your love can still be today a potent soother of the nerves. Help us to recognize the value of accuracy in thought. Help us to value your self-sacrificing love. And help, uh, help us also to value your freedom of conscience. We love you because you also espouse these things above yourself. And we Pray that we might be able to tactfully share this information with others in need. Bring us back tomorrow to learn more about what you would have us be emotionally, to become truly emotionally intelligent. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.